Hello and welcome, this is Robin Harford from eatweeds.co.uk and foragingcourses.com. Welcome to the first episode of the Eat Weeds podcast and during this session we will be speaking with Paul Wedgwood, the leading edge wild food chef of Edinburgh and he's going to be talking to us about Funky Delmardus. Next we've got Monica Wilde from Napiers who will be talking through is comfrey actually safe to eat? There's a lot of controversy over it, so we'll ask Mo. She's the expert on that one, knowing all the research that's been done recently. And there's some quite interesting information that comes out. And finally, we have Alex Laird of Living Medicine down in London, a medical herbalist, who will be talking to us about the importance of community health care and self-care. OK, without much ado, let's get on and rock and roll. OK, I'm here with Paul Wedgwood, the leading edge chef in Edinburgh of Wedgwood the Restaurant. And, Paul, how long have we been working together? I think it's about three years now, isn't it? It's the third year. Okay, okay. And what kind of got you into wild food? Because I know that you've been interested in it way before it ever became kind of popular and uh, mainstream. So, yeah, what is it? Well, well, when I was a child, I was in Cub Scouts and Scouts, and we were always away on adventure weekends and survival weekends, and you know we we, we were you know dining on nettles and sweet sesley and stuff like that, and um, yeah, I loved the flavors back then. It wasn't survival food to me. It was I, I could I could see the benefits and the and the flavors that we could get from these things, and so it's always been part of my cooking. Even even yeah, even when it wasn't on Vogue, I've been serving serving wild food for my entire career. Okay. So it was the inner chef being stuck a chord even at such a young age. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was, I was, I was, I was lucky enough to have a, a privileged upbringing where I was, I was eating out in restaurants from a very young age and uh, developing my palate. So I think you know, being introduced to all these different flavors from such a young age has really sort of helped me develop as a chef and allowed me to, to continue taking the wild food with me. Okay. Well, this year definitely I've noticed a change in your game. Yeah. Uh-huh. The bar I thought was pretty extraordinarily high anyway, and it's just gone way up a notch. So, you and I've just finished the gig over last uh, Saturday. We did it, and one of the things that I found with the meal and that everyone on the dinner table really responded to was um, the Delmardis. Mm-hmm. Now, when I've done teaching and I teach on a plant called Jack by the Hedge, photos on the site under this podcast. Um, I've always talked about that sometimes the specimens can get really big and the leaves can be really big and then I turn up on Saturday and you're doing it. So can you talk us through how easy or difficult or complex it is to make um, Delmardis with Jack by the Hedge? I mean, do you need tons of ingredients or is it really simple something um, every Joe and Joanna in the street can go home and make after this, they listen to you? Oh, um, absolutely. Simple, simple, simple recipe. Um, I actually, with, with the, the, the season in Scotland at the moment, there isn't as many of the larger specimens at, as at present. So um, it was slightly more problematic because we were using younger leaves and smaller leaves. Um, but the, the, the secret to that is that you roll backwards away from the way that you've set out the leaves. So okay. they'll pick themselves up themselves as you But that's, that's something you'll learn with trial and error. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was it was a very very simple um, dish. I mean, Jack by the Hedge is one of my favourite things to use at this time of year. So versatile, you know. Even like you getting down to using your stems, throw them in your stir fries and stuff like that. So anything you're not using, if you're not if you're doing a dolmades, use the stems for the dish, the stir fry dish, the following day. But this so is just, you take the stems out of the leaf before you yeah. roll it up. Okay. 
Um, but this is just a, a, a the, the, the simple recipe with this. We blanched um, our Jack by the Hedge uh, leaves. We also blanched some nettle leaves that we made a puree with. We reserved that water, uh, added a little bit of salt to that water, and then boiled our rice in the water in, in the same water. So we're taking on the the flavours that, that have already been lost from blanching the leaves to begin with. Um, cook that rice through. Took it took it off the boil when it was when it was still nice, just al dente, almost to where you'd take a risotto. Yeah. Um, we then. And what kind of rice are you using? I actually use sushi rice. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, use sushi rice for this one. You can use any any rice, long grain rice, which whatever you prefer. Um, I just thought you know I'd try and do it a little bit different and use sushi rice. Um, did, into that, I had stirred in some just some goat's cheese, and then we chopped some uh, raw three cornered leek. So it gives it that sort of garlicky pungency as well, and a sort mm. of oniony mm. flavours in there. So you're, you're getting it from the rice already because it's been cooked in the water. You're getting it from the dolmada, from the um, the jack by the hedge for the dolmadas wrap, but not as much because it has been blanched. But then you're getting that sort of raw pungency from the three-cornered leek um so yeah that, that was just we just once the rice had cooled sufficiently um just put it into a into a, a cylinder in in it molded in your hands and then we rolled it into in the, the dolmadas leaves the jack by the hedge leaves yeah. sorry yeah. It, to make it to make the dolmadas uh and we sit we yeah we simply served that with um a nettle puree so what we did is we blanched the nettles put them to the side once they're in, in cold water Heated up some cream, brought the cream to the boil, reduced it a little bit, added seasoning, white pepper especially again for okay. that. You know, oh, we've yeah, totally yeah. spoken about yeah. this before, the mouthfeel of the the sort of giving that, that um impression of the stinging nettles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. With the, using the white pepper. Um so once that cream's been boiled and reduced, add the add the blanched and refreshed nettles to that, blitz that up in a food processor and then pass that off and you get this beautiful green puree, really vivid and superb nettle flavours. Mm. Um, really matched well with the with the the, the Jack by the Hedge Dolmades. And then just to finish off that dish, we actually put um, a little bit of a pickled wild or Ramson's bud, uh, which really sort of cut through the richness of the of the goat's cheese with that sort of acidity and the sort of again that pungency from the garlic, but just changed slightly by the acidity from the vinegar. Amazing, amazing dish. I have to say that even though Paul's bigging up his own dish, everyone <laughs> totally agreed, and it was extraordinary. And I think why I like working with you is that we talked about it privately, is that the, this kind of, the complexity of all the different flavours, and it's knowing what will work with what in order to bring it out. Because nettles can be quite bland on their own, mm -hmm. and it's the combination of the subtler ingredients that just bring it up and make it an extraordinary dish. So, are you going to actually give us a recipe, or have you just dangled our taste buds and we're now salivating? <laughs> no, that, that recipe will, will be on the Eat Weed site um, very, very soon. Once Excellent. Okay, and if anyone is in Edinburgh, if you're into world food, Paul is the go-to guy, right? He was doing it long before any of the other people up here. And what I advise is that you hit his web website, which is, what uh, is it, Paul? www.wedgwoodtherestaurant.co.uk and it's W-E-D-G-W-O-O-D for Wedgwood. Excellent, thanks. And um, Paul and I are going to be doing a gig, hopefully um, all being well, in the second week of October. That's 2014. So if you're interested in coming along, then just go to foragingcourses.com and join the mailing list and I'll let you know when it's sorted. So, thanks a lot, Paul, and see you later on. Cheers, Robin. Okay, I'm here with Monica Wilde from Napiers the Herbalist in Edinburgh. 
and today we're going to discuss the safety issues over eating comfrey. So Monica, we're Hi. in your lovely, lovely greenhouse here with all these wonderful wild plants and in front of me are two gorgeous specimens of common comfrey, English comfrey and the Russian comfrey. So Mo, what's the problem? There seems to be a lot of controversy over whether or not you can actually eat comfrey leaves and could you clear up the confusion basically? Yes, I certainly can. Um, the con controversy about comfrey has come from the fact that it contains something called pyrrolizidine alkaloids, commonly known as PAs. Now PAs are a group of um, 660 phytochemicals that are found in over 6,000 plants. They're also found in honey, grains, milk, offal and eggs. And um, pyrrolizidine alkaloids have actually been found in some cases to be potentially hepatotoxic, which basically means that they are poisonous to the liver. And um, back in 18, um, 1980, in Australia, they banned comfrey because a paper had been produced that found that horses that were grazing on comfrey suffered liver problems. Now the key thing to note here is that the study was done on a plant called Symphytum atlanticum, which is actually Russian comfrey. Okay. In English um, herbal medicine, and um, the plant that I eat, we use Symphytum officinal, which is common comfrey. Now, in um, Russian comfrey, it has slightly different PAs, and one of them is called echimidine. Echimidine, and that is... Echidamine, okay. Yeah, and echidamine is the one that's actually been shown to be the one that they're concerned about for liver. And um, in fact, a lot of people confuse these two together. So for instance, in Canada, all species of symphytum are banned, except for symphytum officinal, because echimidine is not found in symphytum officinal. It's okay. not found in common comfrey. Okay, and what's the difference? If, uh, if someone's going out on, into the wilds and they, they come across comfrey, how are they going to be able to discern I mean, if it's in flower, discern the difference between the two. Well, you can see from the ones that we have in front of us that they look quite different. Um, there's obviously similarities, but the most notable thing is, you know, when they're in flower, is that common comfrey has a pale, creamy, slightly yellow flower, whereas Symphytum atlanticum, the Russian comfrey, has this beautiful purpley pink flower. One of the things you have to be careful about is that they will hybridise. Yeah. So you can find um, a hybrid between the two, which also has pinky or bluey sort of flowers as well. But where they're pure cream, they're nearly always common comfrey. So is that the when they're hybridised? Is that the one where you get that kind of very pale? Yes, you do. Purple. Get, you do get that. Because down pale. in England, we're up in Scotland, obviously. Down in England, we get a lot of the very pale purple one. Yes. Well, that's probably a hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The other thing is that... So you wouldn't eat that one? You wouldn't eat that no, one, no. no. Um, the other thing is, is that if you look at the leaves, um, the leaves of this common comfrey are a brighter green in colour and slightly fatter, whereas the leaves on the Russian comfrey are elongated, slightly longer, Yeah. come to a much more of a point, um, and they're also much darker green. Yes. And the veins on it look slightly different as well. You know, with the veins on the comfrey leaf, 
because they have quite a pronounced patterning on the top of the leaves. The sort of creamy um, green comes right through. Whereas again, with the, the Russian comfrey, it's a much more um, bluey green that yeah. comes through as well. Yeah. Um, when you put them side by side, like we have them here, the differences are very obvious, don't you think? Very much, yeah. And if I'm, because I teach sensory um, awareness of plants, actually the kind of, in a way, if we don't get too woolly about it, the kind of ambience of the plant, a bit like when you go into a room and you feel it's got quite a quality to it, plants have the same thing. So the, the quality of the Russian comfrey is definitely almost, um, it's almost, jagged actually compared to the English comfrey that's very soft, it's far softer it feels to me. Yes, the English comfrey looks like a friendlier plant, Yeah. Um, if you could put it that way. Anyway, obviously the 1980 study in Australia um, got a lot of people very concerned about these PAs in comfrey. So in Japan they actually did a lab um, study on baby rats. Okay. And they took these baby rats and um, fed them 8% of their diet as dry weight comfrey. Now, in a human, that would be equivalent to eating 20,000 leaves. Wow. Probably not something that you're going to do. No, not no. really. Not really <laughs> at all. Anyway, out of the 28 rats, um, after, at about 600 days, which is a very long life for a rat indeed, and far longer than a normal rat's lifespan, yeah. um, one, one of them showed a liver tumour. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, in humans, the only study that I'm aware of was done by Dr. Claire Anderson. Um, this was at the laboratory for the Pharmacokinetics and Toxicology School at the University of London. And she tested 40 long-term comfrey consumers with liver function tests, and all of them were found to have fit livers. Right. right. Perfectly fit livers. So comfrey's got a very... Or it, British comfrey has got a very, very bad name because of this PA, echimidine, in Russian comfrey. Um, and it's a shame because it's a very valuable herb in herbal medicine. It's very good at knitting together um, torn tendons, um, broken bones, yeah. and things like that. In fact, the name comfrey comes from confrera, which is the Latin, to knit together. Oh, okay, so that's why it's known as bone knit then, or knit bone? Um, knit bone, knit yes, bone. It's yeah. certainly it's known as knit bone. And, um, and it's also got um, um, allantoin, so it's actually very good for the skin as well. Um, not to mention that nutritionally it's very high in vitamin A, riboflavin, potassium, manganese, iron, dietary fibre. Oh, right. And it's also a good source of many other vitamins and minerals, particularly things like selenium and magnesium, which the body needs to you know, absorb a lot of the other nutrients as well. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's delicious. Um, we made um, comfrey leaf lemonade fritters last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what that was, was extraordinary. No, it was extraordinary. <laughs> but one thing that we that I certainly noticed, and we kind of all agreed on it, was that um, when you're picking it to kind of temper it or or batter it up, that you really need kind of like the budding leaf, don't you? Yes. So the, you've got a bit of chunk in there, yeah, rather than just you, a solo leaf. When you use the buds, you get that lovely crispy outside of the the tempura batter. And inside you get this really sort of soft, moist, sort of gentle, sweet flavour. Yeah, which yeah. Which is lovely. And for, for everyone who's listening, what I'm going to be doing is I am on my eatweeds.co.uk site, I will be putting photos up of the different types of comfrey, the, the English comfrey and the Russian comfrey. And hopefully Mo's going to let us steal her... Um, her recipe that we had last night. Yes, so, absolutely. So you're going to have a whole kind of 
mix here. You've got the, the interview with Mo, obviously, telling us about Comfrey. Then we've got the photos, so you can start doing your own research into identifying it. And please don't use Google Images. Go to your library and get wildflower books out and use those. Google, often people will tag photos in Google as a specific plant, and they got it completely wrong. So don't rely on Google Images, please, for your plant identification. Lots of misinformation out there, which is one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, to clear a lot of the confusion up. The other thing that they found when they actually have analysed um, the, the, the plant is that the leaf contains far less PAs than the root. Ah, okay. okay, right. So yeah. the MHRA, which is the, you know, the medicinal body that governs medicines in the UK, has actually made the use of the root not recommended in herbal medicine. Right. Um, but the leaf is still used. And in fact, in the um, German pharmacopoeia, it's still allowed as an over-the-counter medicine. And it certainly wouldn't be. Um, you know, it would have been banned completely um, if there was that concern. Um, some leaves have been shown to found, you know, absolutely none at all, but certainly much lower levels of PAs in general than okay. the root. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Mo, Lovely. thanks a lot. You're Have welcome. a great day, and we'll catch you later on in the autumn. All right, bye. So I'm here with Alex Laird, who is a medical herbalist from livingmedicine.org. So welcome, Alex. And I've just got a question for you. The NHS is basically falling off a cliff. We're being told that there's no money. So how can plants be used by um, communities and by ourselves and for our families and our children to aid our path to well-being and keep us well when a support structure like the NHS that's been around so long suddenly isn't going to be there? Well, it is... You could do it in several ways. First of all, you can actually find out what your family, if there are any family traditions that existed, as to, for example, in um, a lot of Asian and Indian families will be using and giving their children uh, turmeric in hot milk when they have poor, bad colds or stomach upsets. It's almost like a cure-all turmeric, this wonderful golden powder, which comes from a rhizome. Uh, like ginger, same family. And that has many, many effects as an anti-inflammatory, it supports liver function, it's an antioxidant, it has many actions. So one route is just to find out what the family does. Um, the grandmother that used to know, though that sadly some of that information has been lost. Yeah. Go to the kitchen cupboard. Most of the, these spices that we have have got all sorts of um, anti-inflammatory, antiseptic, um, digestive, all kinds of actions, which, um, okay, you may need to know what do those, find out what those actually do. A good book can actually help you. Um, but if you can find a local herbalist or a local nutritionist that actually teaches some of these skills as to what these plants in your very own cupboard or these foods do, that will sort of set you on your way. And what do we do for kind of low-income families? Because it's all very well for, you know, I can afford to go and, and pay a herbalist, whatever the, the going rate is, depending on which part of the country. But a lot of people can't. Mm. So, I mean, one of the appeals of wild food is 
the economic aspect exactly. of it, that it is exactly. actually not only it's nutritious and healthy, we know that, but it's actually economical, it saves people money. So when we're talking about medicines and, and looking after ourselves, mm. um, what would you suggest? Well, plants and food as medicine are the absolutely most sustainable, most cheapest form of medicine that there is. Because exactly as you're saying, Robin, they are, it is free. You've got, you under your very feet, what you don't notice. It's the invisible made visible when you start learning about what is there out of, out, outside. Um, even in between paving stones in the pavement, although you'd preferably look for something a bit cleaner. But you go, for, you know, dandelion leaf, which is rich in potassium. It's like all green foods. It has chlorophyll, which is magnesium rich. And its bitterness is what helps to support the liver function and in digestion. digestion. So this is a free food, which now you pay the earth for if you go to some posh restaurant, but there it is for free. Yeah. If you yeah. get clean and you wash them, you get them clean and you wash them. Um, and the root itself is again... Um, uh, a fantastic liver support, a liver function, it supports liver function. Liver is really important for helping to um, break down um, substances in the body that need to be excreted. So um, breaking down whether it's toxins or helping to break down food, and all that process of metabolism that helps to keep your function going. Right. So the, the heavy the metals? Does, does it that. good with heavy metals? It's a partly. It'll help to some extent. But okay. there are other things like um, Brazil nuts, for example, which contain selenium. Okay, yeah. And those help to bind the heavy metals um, and reduce and remove them out of the body, as does seaweed, another yeah, very good sure. source. So um, the great thing about, yes, food and plants as medicine first of all it's not even just the herbs it's understanding that it's the whole food world all these foods that you can get the cheapest foods yeah like lentils and beans the whole legume family yeah they are also like little sources of plant estrogen they're like little ovaries little eggs you okay. could say they're seeds they contain they have the richest source of what are called plant estrogens, which act like um, balancing hormones in the body, very, very much um, less powerful than our own human animal yeah. hormones. But they act, it seems like they act in the plant as defense chemicals. They don't act as growth hormones, but they are defense chemicals in some way. Um, but in humans, they act to moderate our levels of... Um, hormones and so with problems that are hormonal like menopause or um, menstrual problems by eating plant estrogen rich foods like the beans and the pulses you yeah. help naturally to bring a little bit of balance into those hormonal functions okay so that's the first thing but they also do other things because the beauty of the the bean and the pulse is that they're rich in fiber and the fiber is something that helps to keep your energy level really good it helps to keep your mood good and that is because it is slow release food yeah so it takes a long time for it to release it takes slower time for it to release sugar and therefore insulin and basically balances out and helps you buffer yourself against the effects of stress and adrenaline release so it's a real resilience building kind of food any 
whole food is, but particularly the ones that are slow release. Yeah. So those legumes like oats and oatmeal or grains that are whole grains, like rice, whole grain rice, short grain brown rice is really delicious and nutty. That's um, again another and uh, barley like that, yeah. that grain as well. These are both slow release um, grains which have got all their vitamin rich coating there and uh, these again help to raise your blood sugar more slowly help to prevent these ups and downs in blood sugar and insulin and basically help you with energy and mood and buffer you against the effects of stress so if we then incorporate say wild greens in with those grains then we're talking and moving into a whole different kind of health league of of real power foods and superfoods you're rocking and rolling you cannot get better and superfood exactly and it's out your front door and down in your local grocers exactly imagine you know putting together some ramsons um wild garlic wild garlic um you've already if you make say uh, a rice grain pulse dish as a base, and yep. then you can add in, you fry a few ramsons, add some mushrooms, which are immune-supporting, help to raise your white blood cells, and therefore help to fight infection, as do the ramps, actually, yeah. as well, the ramsons. Or some jack-in-the-hedge, which is hedge mustard, which yeah. is overflowing at the moment. It is, absolutely. It's, having its, it's just unbelievably... Um, rich in the hedgerows at the moment unbelievable and there's Haven't pictures of this underneath obviously the podcast fantastic so you you know fry those together add some um you just sweat them in a little bit of butter or olive oil um, or you could put them in raw even mm-hmm. or you can make a pesto out of them yeah you know you can just do a whole lot of things but uh, adding those to, or maybe some nettles you might yeah, gather as sure. well, maybe in you know, some spinach, chop all that up, and then mix them into the um, into the grain pulse dish. Yeah, you've got a whole kind of like a risotto, in, really quickly made. If you keep your pulse dish in the fridge for two or three days in a nice yeah. cool fridge, you've got a base dish that you can add all these lovely green things into. So kind of the illusion really is that people often think that in order to be healthy you've got to buy these really expensive foods and as you've just said it's and the shown, opposite. it is the opposite. It's, the it's just the knowledge opposite. of knowing where to go. Knowing where to, to get these things, yeah. yes. Okay, so just um, to, to wind up, can you tell us what the living medicine agenda is? Because <laughs> it's, it's very common space, it's very community-based. Yeah. So just tell a few people about yeah. it and if they want to learn more where do they go and how do they get in touch well living medicine at its simplest is all about re-learning re-skilling in using plants and food for health herbs and foods for health and learning how to make what you need to help um, address a cold or a digestive problem or mood problems sleep problems what are those common simple remedies that you can do for yourself and passing that knowledge on to each other that's the main idea. Right. So it's definitely reskilling through healthcare. It's reskilling how do we use plants and foods in health, which every yeah. family used to know, and many still do, but largely we've forgotten this. And it's really about relearning that and re inspiring people about how to either go and forage, grow it themselves in their garden, buy it from a supermarket, because foods are so important as well in health and understanding their actions in the body and how they can help you. 
Great, great. And we're talking very much lay persons. You don't need a diploma. You don't need to be a master's degree, have a university degree. This is how we used to keep ourselves well before, I mean, kind of really before the war, wasn't it? You know, stuck out in the middle of the countryside. Your doctor was 20 miles away on a bicycle. You had to learn this stuff. And look at the old home economics books. Bits of it are in there. Obviously, it's the 21st century. We've come light years ahead since the, the war. The war, the Second World War. And... Yeah, okay. we, we, we started off by doing workshops and one-off workshops on particular topic, health issues. And then that was so successful that we realised that people wanted to know much more. You know, they're growing their own vegetables. They want to know what do you do with that? I mean, what you can do with watercress, amazingly important uh, medicine, beetroot, another amazingly important medicine in helping to reduce blood pressure because it contains nitrates. The whole brassica family is really helpful at metabolizing getting rid of too much estrogen in the body which acts like a growth factor in things like breast cancer or lots of other problems and so now we're running a course and a simple course in teaching ourselves how to look after ourselves and then eventually we'll be teaching those very same people how to teach each other community mentoring basically exactly just working with local communities to and there's a real excitement and interest in learning those things and getting their hands on plants and turning them into medicine. Yeah, no, it's really vital work because, like I said at the beginning, the, um, the NHS is, is going and irrespective of whether or not we want it to stay, the reality is the money is not there and we're going to have to rely on ourselves, folks. Well, Come I think back the to NHS knows that and it's saying Well, the NHS knows it, but... Is, is, is a really important part and it's quite acceptable to the NHS that people look after themselves and the thing is persuading, not persuading but just showing um, the mainstream NHS, the mainstream medicine that, that um, what we're teaching is safe, safe medicine and responsibly done and something that all families really do need to, you know, uh, reskill themselves with. Yeah. No, it's almost as as important as reading, writing, and arithmetic. It absolutely should be up on. there, shouldn't it? It should definitely yeah, it should be. Up be. There. And we're hoping to introduce this more into the community, and everyone gets savvy. So, thank you, Alex, and we will most probably be talking to you down the line. And if anyone's got any questions for Alex, just drop me an email. The address is under this podcast. So, thanks. Thank you.